Hi there, and welcome to Behind the Curtain, where we go deep into the issues of the day and talk to people who know what's behind the smokescreen of what they want you to see and what's really going on. I'm Jackie Guzda. We're about to take a brief tour of Connecticut. In this astronaut's eye view from outer space, it appears small geographically, but it looms increasingly large the closer one approaches. Connecticut is strategically located between New York and Boston in the heart of the rich northeastern market. It's a state of dynamic economic growth, rich in variety and full of opportunity. And Southwest Connecticut actually has the biggest gap between rich and poor people than anywhere else in the United States of America. And to discuss that today and what affordable housing can do to decrease that gap, we're talking to Jacqueline Rabe Thomas. She has written an article called Separation by Design, How Some of America's Richest Towns Fight Affordable Housing. This article was produced through a partnership between ProPublica and the Connecticut Mirror, which is a member of the ProPublica Reporting Network. So, Jackie, welcome. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about this. It all goes back to the catalyst, the year 2014. There was a developer who bought 2.2 acres of property, and he wanted to build a mix of single and multifamily housing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So th this location is sort of the entryway into Westport. And Westport is one of the wealthiest places in the country um, and one of the wealthiest places in Connecticut for sure. And so it's, you know, right off the Merritt Parkway. It, it he is heading into town, maybe, you know, a mile, a mile outside of the main street where there's, you know, Rodea Drive-like stores all throughout this, this main street. And so he thought, you know, what better place to have somewhere right off the highway for, mm. for housing? And it wasn't even, you know, the the typical affordable housing that usually gets so much pushback. So meaning dedicated for low in income individuals, this was just going to be multifamily, um, meaning that he wanted to have more units on this lot than zoning would allow otherwise. And so there was a need in town that has been acknowledged by local officials that they need more um, places for older people to downsize if they want to downsize. And he thought, hey, I have an idea. This lot's for sale. Let's 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 make that happen. It's right off the highway. It's right down the street from the main street. Let's make this happen. And he was put through the ringer. You know, it took years for, for him to get across the finish line. And his, his takeaway from this was, you know, I'm not doing this again in Westport. Mm. I'm going to stick with the, you know, the McMansions, the big houses that, you know, you know, you can get approval for. Mm. Well, I heard he had a kind of a hard time at one of the community meetings about this. Right. So he was regularly greeted, well, him and his team of developers and architects and all of that, they were regularly greeted with community pushback from people who didn't want this lot to be turned into 
housing. They, you know, they wanted it to be something different. It was zoned for three houses or sorry, four houses, I believe. And they wanted it to have no more than four houses. The idea of having 12 homes there or 12 units there was, was sort of scary to them. They thought it would be a lot of traffic. It was, um, you know, and, and to alleviate some of those concerns, he tried to meet them in the middle. He said, you know, I'm going to make the, the entry and exit point off of the, not off the main street, but off of the side street so that they, you know, they're not going, that, that won't be adding traffic and potentially car accidents to that main artery. Um, still pushback, um, you know, at one of the meetings and they, there were people who showed up with signs saying zoning is a prop is a promise, meaning mm. don't change the zoning. We moved here thinking that this was going to be, you know, quarter acre lot requirement in order to, to build in this, in this part of town. And, and you changing that is breaking your promise to me. Um, someone else yelled out right before the vote at, where the, the local zoning board approved it saying you're selling out Westport. Um, and, and this is coming, I should back up for a second. This is coming in a town that does not have a lot of affordable housing. This is coming in a town that is, is really, really high end that they, you know, most of their residents are white. It has, it has few minorities. There's few people who, who live in poverty and that, that, or have lower incomes in that town. So, um, the, this town is disproportionately does not reflect the, the demographics of the state. Mm, yeah, there's something like, what, 65 units in the last 30 years of affordable housing Westport has built. Right. So there's been 65 affordable units dedicated for low-income individuals in the last three decades. Mm. Um you know, in many towns, unfortunately, this is the case where there has been a snail's pace of moving forward with having housing dedicated for low-income individuals. That's interesting because we are known as a very liberal state. Yeah, so our legislature has been occupied by Democrats for the last 22 and a half years, the governor's mansion for the last eight and a half. So, you know, there has been... Um, if if something if they wanted to change something they had the op- they've had the opportunity mm. to do so. Mm. So it's it's not only Westport. I mean, I looked around to buy a house in Southwest Connecticut, and I've not been very successful. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the other towns where uh, they have these strict, strict, strict large lot zoning requirements? Uh, for instance, someplace like Monroe. Sure. So there, there are a lot of reasons that are cited in, in zoning laws that say you can't have X number of units on one acre of land or, um, so, so things like that. So for Monroe, which is a high income town in Southwest Connecticut, it requires at least 70 acres for multifamily housing Mm. construction. Um, and, you, and they can't have more than two bedrooms. So that just inherently is going to make those homes really expensive if anyone decides to do, you know, a, a complex of, you know, 10 homes that can have no more than two bedrooms. Those are going to be really expensive because, you know, with density, housing density comes prices going down. Mm -hmm. And so if you're requiring less density or not allowing less density rather, then prices are going to stay high. It's sort of the the natural laws of supply and demand. Yeah, I guess I can cross that off my list. (laughs) Um, But there was a lot. There was a lot 30 years ago. 
the 8-30G law. Uh, there was a truck driver who tried to build a smaller house, and actually the courts um, cited on his side is that they called it economic discrimination. Yeah, so the, the courts said, you know, you can't have something that disproportionately impacts certain individuals and requiring such a large lot size in order, or sorry, that wasn't a large lot size case. That was actually a case of floor span, floor plan space. So you had to have, you know, I forget what the exact amount was in that case, but you couldn't have um, fewer than 1500 um, square foot feet, say for example, in a home. And he wanted to, you know, God forbid, have a home with 1400 feet. Um, he wasn't allowed and they weren't willing to give him an exception. So um, he took it to court and ultimately won. And, and when the court ruled in that case, they left it up to the legislature to craft a solution to make sure that um, zoning laws weren't acting as a proxy for economic and racial discrimination. And what they did was they created the 8-30G statute, which, it, which is um, says that if you don't have at least 10% of your housing stock affordable in your town, meaning that um, people can, you know, people, working class families can afford to live in that town and it's dedicated for, for working class families, that you have to allow developers to, or developers can bypass your zoning decisions in court. So in a place like Westport that doesn't have very much affordable housing, developers can bypass local zoning laws if they, if that, if Westport doesn't have at least 10% of its housing stock um, deemed affordable. And so that's been a, a potential avenue for 30 years. But what I found through this, through my reporting was that it can take a very, very long and expensive path to, to actually use and take advantage of 830G. You know, court cases are expensive and and towns are really savvy with this. And I, and I witnessed this in Westport with one developer, you know, they were on their third plan of, uh, you know, traffic remediation studies. They can require like all these different studies, which are expensive that the developer has to provide in order to prove that it's safe, that the water is there. And, and, you know, there's, there's some, some of these, some of the studies, I'm sure, have merit that they need to make sure that the water pressure is right, so that water can get to if a fire breaks out at a, at a development. But what I've also heard is that they're used as a weapon. That um, developers know that there are certain towns that will fight you till the end, and it will be expensive, and they'll require every single study to prove that it's effective or not. They'll do, use every single legal remedy possible to appeal, and and it, it'll take, you know, this one developer that I spoke with, he was going on his 14th year mm -hmm. with trying to get a proposal um, in town, and, you know, it's, and this was right off of a train station, about a half mile from the train station there in Westport. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about needing transit-oriented development, meaning, you know, development close to, to train stations and bus terminals and, and the like, but, you know, the, the practicality is this developer can't get across the finish line. Wow. I mean, Westport is a beautiful place, no doubt. Uh, However, there's got to be poor people there, or even lower middle class. 
In Westport. Um, yeah. Yes. So they do have some poor people there. Um, it's just far below what the state's demographics are. So it's, you know, it's very clear that there have been strategies that have been put in place so that low-income individuals struggle to ever find a home in that town because it's not being allowed to middle-class homes or even lower income homes aren't, is not being built in that town because of, uh, because of barriers. So it's essentially keeping them out, as you say, by design. Exactly. But let's look at the whole state of Connecticut now. Uh, Is there a big need for affordable housing? I mean, if you look at where it's built right now, it's those more friendly towns for developers, uh, the big cities, New Haven, Bridgeport, and all of that. Say that somebody who's living on the edge, you had an example of uh, a couple with three kids in your article. And they can't seem to find a way out of a bad neighborhood. Uh, Can we talk a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, I spent some time with a family, um, mostly the mom, Ashana Cunningham. She, you know, is just she's the mom that, you know, is living paycheck to paycheck. She worked at a local daycare, does work at a local daycare, makes $12.50 an hour. Um, You know, the the money she's bringing home just isn't enough to pay the bills for rent. Um, And then, so she was living paycheck to paycheck to pay her rent. And then her wife got sick Mm -hmm. and her wife could no longer work. So, Mm -hmm. and then she, she, someone ran into her with their car and totaled her car. And she can, and, and so like, it's just like this cascading, like one thing after another, just, you know, that you can totally see it happening to, to, you know, you or your family member and, you know, just one, one bad thing away from being homeless. So, you know, with those two life events, she became homeless and mm. she's, she's trying to get back on her feet, working still at the daycare, making $12 and 50 cents an hour. But, um, Southwest Connecticut is one of the most expensive places to live in the country. And so you have to move where housing is within your price range. And for many families, including Ashana Cunningham, that is Bridgeport. That is where the affordable housing is built. You know, Governor Malloy, the previous governor here in Connecticut, during his tenure, three quarters of public spending on on the construction of new housing for for to help keep prices down and rent for folks was were in these ten lowest hmm. lowest income communities. One mm-hmm. percent was in the top ten. Wow. In the 10 richest communities. So there's a you know, and when I asked the governor, like, why? why build all the affordable housing in Bridgeport and Hartford? And he said, said, you know, you build where you can. He knows the reality that Connecticut is a local authority state. And there's a state law that, that that pretty much gave all this authority of how zoning decisions play out to local zoning boards. And Mm. so unless unless developers are willing to spend the the long amount of time and large amount sums of money to go to court mm. the reality is that few projects get across the finish line in communities that are not willing to to be 
partners in opening housing for low-income individuals. Mm. Well, Daniel Malloy also said in your article that the state of Connecticut has, and I quote, denied the opportunity that we allowed white middle-class aspirants to access. Yep. He, um, he was very much in favor of trying to make sure that 830G was a strong approach that developers had in towns that weren't willing to open affordable housing. During his tenure, the legislature, in a bipartisan fashion, weakened that law, mm. so made it so that towns could get waivers even easier from that 830G, meaning that they were able to, like a Westport, for example, just this year, they received a waiver so that towns so that developers can no longer go around them for the next four years uh, with zoning laws. So their developers, it's up to the town now to get something, to approve something, because 830G, that law does not apply to them for the next four years. Wow. So I just want to remind everybody, we're talking about working people, people with jobs, people who get low wages. We're also talking about senior citizens, which over half in the United States pay over 50 percent of their income on housing. So what what are the benefits? Uh, all of these families have kids. And if you get a kid into, say, a better, stable living environment, uh, a better school system, what are the benefits to these kids who will go on to be the next generation and benefit our society as a whole? So so you mentioned seniors, and I do want to mention that towns that do allow affordable housing or that, you know, lose in court and, and it eventually becomes a reality, um, oftentimes the units that open are one-unit apartments or two-unit apartments. So inherently, families are sort of boxed out of that because, you know, a family can't fit into a one-unit, a one-bedroom apartment. Mm. Um, so that's sort of a way around getting families into your unit. There, There is, um, you know, during some of the public hearings that I sat through, there's a fear about the cost that having additional kids in schools means for your local municipalities. That's a, that is a concern that is regularly raised. The reality is that school districts across the state have, re have in recent years seen significant declines in school age population. So we're not talking about, you know, a school district going from 100 kids to, you know, 200 kids. Um, we're talking about a school district that's already down, you know, 10% in their population and maybe adding one or two kids hmm. um, when some of these units open. So inherently, like in Westport, for example, one of the projects that did finally come across the finish line there, um, it was all one and two unit apartments. And so... You know, how many kids did that add to the school district? I would venture to guess not very many. Mm. Um, but, but to your question about what it means for kids or for families with kids when they're able to move into these um, neighborhoods, you know, there's been research by Brookings Institution that found that in southwest Connecticut, it costs three and a half times more to live <laughs> near the high-scoring 
sorry, near the high performing schools. So it just, you know, in, in Bridgeport, Ashana Cunningham, the, the woman that I was talking about before, for her family to cross that line to move to a, a school system and buy a house or be able to a, a rent in a, another another community where the highest performing school districts are, $25,000 more she Ooh. would need to add to her annual income on top of what she's already making. So, you know, it's not a small cost for Ashana Cunningham to to be able to move to, in the highest performing school districts is what Brookings found. Um, you know, there's there's all sorts of there, I mean there's countless there's endless research that shows, you know, what happens when someone lives in different communities that neighborhoods matter. There um, there's a so-called opportunity atlas. I would encourage all your listeners to Google opportunity atlas. The Census Bureau they teamed up with some researchers at Harvard a few years back and tracked the outcomes of 20 million children and where they ended up by the time they were in their early 30s. And when you look at just the life outcomes, the arrest rates are much higher for kids who grew up in Bridgeport compared to, you know, just a couple miles down the road in Westport. You know, they're, they're, health outcomes, the mm. asthma rates. I could go on and on with yeah. all the different sort of life outcomes that matter based on your neighborhood. Sure. I mean, I mean, you just touched upon it that, um, you know, your health is better. Your future in general is better. I mean, um, having a stable home in a good environment will raise is what is called a quote unquote well child over those ch- children that are on the waiting list for affordable housing. Exactly. Exactly. So, all right, so we talked about the benefits for people who need affordable housing. Let's talk about the other side. Let's talk about the people who move to places like Monroe, Westport, all these places in Connecticut, uh, who move there for having the promise of good schools, healthy living, uh, less crime, less of an impact on their property values? Do they not have a right to these things? Look, buying a house is the largest investments most Americans will ever make. And people want to protect that investment. And that is a very fair conclusion that people make, that they they don't want their home to be devalued by you know, a huge apartment building showing up right across the street from their, you know, colonial home. And so I think what the argument's been made is that fitting these affordable units into sort of the fabric of the community so that when you drive by it, you're, it's not like an eyesore when you, when you go by it, um, so that your housing values don't go down. And you know, that's, that's all about urban planning and, 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 and development and making sure that towns have a say in how, you know, what color roof you want, what, you know, what the architecture will look like. Towns get that ability when someone wants to develop in their town and nothing in state law says that you lose that authority. What they say is that if you're not going on your own good faith effort, in order to help develop more multi-units in your town, you know, naturally occurring, more reasonably priced housing that doesn't necessarily have to be dedicated for low-income individuals, that that you that developers can go around you if you're not doing it on your own, and and so many towns are not doing it on their own. 
there are three dozen towns in the state of Connecticut that in the last two decades have not developed a single multi-unit. Hmm. No duplexes, no apartment buildings, no townhomes, nothing. There's 18 towns where it's been 28 years. Hmm. So to, to think that developers don't want to open a townhomes in those communities, I don't think is a fair statement. And so it's, it doesn't have to be the towering apartment complex of 400 units. You know, towns get authority to say what they want in their town. It's when they say no to everything is when other options and, and 830G starts to come into play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was um, when I was researching this interview, it seemed like 50 units was the magic number, that if you had less than 50 units, you had less crime, property values around that complex did not go down, and there were actually benefits to having the affordable housing units in the town. Right. So, you know, having affordable housing and being able to have um, people who live in your town from different demographics um, you know, that's a, that's a cultural discussion and philosophical debate, um, that I'll reserve for others to, to have, but, you know, there, there is research that shows that, um, that having diverse exposure to diversity is a good thing for, for individuals. Well, of course, of course, good restaurants, more points of view, new friends. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily have to be crime-infested and and a blight. As a matter of fact, they found out there was a big positive push uh, to put affordable housing in areas that were already blighted because it brought the neighborhood up. Right. So there there is a big push to put – to spend states' resources and marshal – public dollars towards blighted communities that have, you know, historically been underserved. And with the idea that having better housing in those communities will bring the whole, like all boats rise type of mentality that, you know, having vacant lots and vacant properties all over town is never going to, you know, entice individuals to buy homes in that community or, or many individuals to buy homes in that community. And so, you know, there is sort of an economic development argument that goes with where you strategically and where the state strategically decides to place its resources or spend its resource on public housing. Mm. So what's the answer? What can somebody who's listening to this podcast do to take action to uh, promote a more positive image of affordable housing in Connecticut? When affordable housing is proposed for your town, think about what affordable housing you would like and what it should look like. Um, forget about any connotations with the type of people who might live in that in that housing, but think about the, the architecture of a home that would be acceptable to you. Um, if your answer is it has to be on a one-acre lot, that's not going to be affordable for people. Um, if if the lots one acre lots in your town go for a half a million dollars, um, so challenge yourself to think density can be a good thing and it can still fit into the character of your neighborhood. Sure, look at my hometown, Stanford. 
Um, it's when I was teaching at UConn there, they were calling Stanford Stam Vegas. The kids were all excited about living downtown. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So maybe you can help me find a condo down there that I can afford. I doubt it. But I want to thank you so much, Jackie. This has been such an eye opening conversation. I will I will say that Stanford does have an ex- inclusionary zoning requirement that all new multi-units have a set aside for low-income individuals. So they, they are welcoming of um, low-income individuals that when, as things get built, they do have to have some of their housing dedicated for low-income individuals. Terrific. Okay. I want to thank you so much for this, Jackie. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. This has been Behind the Curtain, a conversation about the issues that affect our lives. Behind the Curtain is produced under the auspices of Western Connecticut State University. Come back and listen. There's a new show at the start and the middle of every month. I'm Jackie Gusta. Talk to you soon.